Welcome to the 369th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Jennifer Sullivan, founder of the For Those We Lost podcast. A reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free, as always, to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, November 1st, 2021, there are 5,001,871 deaths from COVID 19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. This is Bobby Lee's obituary, written September 14th, 2020, and shared with me by my guest today, Jennifer Sullivan. Bobby Lee, formerly Bobby Lucas, a loving mother and grandmother passed away Monday, August 24th, 2020, at age 82 due to complications from COVID-19. She was born on July 16th, 1938, on the U.S. Army Base Fort Jay on Governor's Island in New York City, New York, to Richard Benjamin Lee and Kate Quinn Lee. She grew up around the world, spending some of her young life in Austria right after World War II, and graduating from Roosevelt High School in Honolulu, Hawaii, while her father was stationed on the island. She spent her 20s working for American Airlines in San Francisco, California, where she met and married Gerald Jerry Eugene Lucas in 1967. Jerry and Bobby moved away from San Francisco during the summer of love because it wasn't their cup of tea. They ended up across the country in Nashua, New Hampshire, on a farm where they raised chickens, pigs, and goats, and grew their own vegetables and even ground wheat for bread. While living in their farmhouse, they had two daughters, Jennifer and Deborah. Bobby worked as a travel agent, and after a handful of years in New Hampshire, the family started their trek across the U.S., living in many cities and towns along the way. As an air traffic controller, Jerry moved from airport to airport, and Bobby and their girls moved along. Jerry and Bobby divorced in 1979, and Bobby and her girls settled in Chateau, Montana. Bobby worked as a nurse's aide at Teton County Hospital. She delivered the Great Falls Tribune around town for almost 10 years. She was a receptionist at Ear Mountain Machinery, and she was most well-known for her years of work as a teacher's aide at Chateau High School. She worked there from 1980 to 1987 walking the halls, filling in for teachers, selling tickets to almost every sporting event and musical or theater performance held at the school during those years. Students from the school will remember her most for hollering outside or in the study hall. Bobby relocated to Oregon in 1987, where she continued to work in customer service for many mobile home dealers and manufacturers. From there, she spent a few wonderful years working as the main receptionist for the KUPL radio station was one of her favorite jobs. As she approached retirement, Bobby moved to Arizona to help care for her youngest grandson, Tommy, after he was born. She volunteered at his school. She worked the voting polls. She line danced. She worked at Baby Gap part-time because she loved it. Bobby was also a zealous red hatter. Bobby suffered a few concussion falls in her later life and suffered cognitive impairment. She was diagnosed with Alzheimer's from a traumatic brain injury in 2013. Her daughters moved her back to Oregon and she continued to be active and independent until she had to be moved to the Murray Highland Memory Care Facility. She lived there for the last two years of her life. Bobby was loved by her family and every Wednesday they would take her out to dinner. As Bobby's memory declined, her family picked her favorite restaurant and took her there each week. 
Pietro's Pizza in Beaverton was a welcome place with food and fun for any family members who came along. Those Wednesday night dinners were a blessing for many years. Her family continued to bring food from Pietro's into her memory care each Wednesday until the COVID-19 pandemic closed the facility to visitors. At the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, her daughters visited her through the window of her facility and Bobby embraced the changes as best she could with a sense of humor and her usual resilience. The last time her family gathered at the window was on July 16th for her 82nd birthday party, affectionately referred to by her daughters as the best pandemic birthday. We will always remember this day as the last best day we gathered with Bobby to celebrate. Bobby was devoted to her family, her daughters, and her grandchildren, and there was nowhere we would all rather be in a pandemic than at her window sharing her birthday with her. Bobby was preceded in death by her parents, Richard Ben and Kate Quinn, and by her brothers Richard, by her brother Richard. She survived by her daughters Jennifer Lucas Sullivan of Aloha, Oregon, and Deborah Lucas Busby of Spirit Lake, Idaho. She's also survived by her brothers and sisters, Kathy, Eileen, Mary, Robert, Michael, and Patrick, all of Oregon and California. Bobby had eight grandchildren who loved her beyond measure. They are Ethan, Joe, Joshua, Corey, Lucas, Jensen, Nichelle, and Tommy. And she had six great-grandchildren who never knew the wonderful woman she was before Alzheimer's, but who cherished her all the same. Olivia, Benson, Haley, Flynn, Farron, and Jackson. Bobby was a force of nature. She was independent, hardworking. She loved fiercely, and she bravely fought the ravages of Alzheimer's disease for over a decade. Her daughters passionately believe that were it not for COVID, Bobby would be here today and for probably another 10 years. She was a fighter. If you feel so compelled, the family asks that you donate to the Alzheimer's Association in her name. The obituary of Bobby Lee, September 14th, 2020. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today and let me introduce my guest, Jennifer Sullivan. Jennifer lives outside of Portland, Oregon. She's a part-time community college instructor and also works in social media marketing. Her mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's from a traumatic brain injury in 2014 and Jennifer became her mother's family caregiver and advocate. Her mother, whom we just heard about in that obituary, was in a memory care home when the COVID pandemic lockdowns began in March of 2020. Jennifer made it her mission to try and find a way to visit her mother, to provide the physical contact, hugs and kisses that her mom needed. Instead, her mom got COVID in an outbreak in her memory care and passed away in August of 2020. To help herself heal, Jennifer started a podcast where she interviews people who have lost loved ones to COVID. And that's how I first found out about Jennifer Sullivan's work. Jennifer, welcome to COVID Calls. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. It's really, really an honor to be here. So uh, we're going to talk about your mom. It's a tremendous uh, life story, and, and I want to hear more about it. Um, first, I'd like to just start the way I generally do, just find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation looks like there today. Well, I'm calling from Oregon, outside of Oregon, in uh, the Beaverton, Aloha area. Right now, we have mask mandates indoors and outdoors if you can't maintain social distancing in this state was locked down pretty severely from the beginning and stayed under lockdown measures until June, the end of June of this year. So the overall state case numbers and death numbers are really low, which is wonderful, but it also makes someone like me who lost someone to COVID in this state feel uh, pretty isolated and alone because I don't know anybody else in my real life who lost somebody. That's um, it's really interesting, you know, vantage point on it, you know, coming from a state like Oregon that may have had, or maybe Massachusetts, some that maybe managed the pandemic pretty well. I mean, it's really, it's been described by others as a, as a 50 state pandemic with these many different experiences. But as time goes on, it does seem like it breaks down between those states, which have had enormous death tolls and ones like Oregon. 
with less. Do you, do you do find it's hard to connect with people because of, of the low, relatively low number of deaths? I do. I do. Yeah. I, um, for a while I scoured the obituaries looking for the names of the other people at my mom's facility who passed away, just trying to find anybody that I could reach out to on the phone and, and try to talk to about it. But yeah, I, I don't know anyone. I know people who have had COVID here. I, I had COVID last October, but I don't know anybody here in Oregon who lost someone. The, the population of the state is 4.2 million. So there's only 4,300 deaths. That's a, a very small percentage of people. So let's talk a little bit more about your mom. Okay. Um, yeah, and really appreciate the obituary and the, and the details there. I mean, um, we've all been reading a lot of obituaries during these COVID times. And I really appreciate the ones where they give you these details, like the fact that she worked for American Airlines or that she worked for a mobile home company and then, or that she walked the halls of the high school. I mean, you can really picture it. Yeah. Um, what did she like to do most? I think she loved to be around people most. That's why she worked at the school. She worked as a receptionist. She loved loved her job at KUPL, which is a local radio station, because she was the first person people saw, so she could always say hi and talk. The Baby Gap, she worked at in her 70s because it was wonderful for mothers with little kids to come in and she got to talk to them and see their babies. She, she loved talking to people. <laughs> She was definitely one of those those people you could send in to start a conversation in any in any setting. Oh, yeah. Everybody oh, yeah. has one in their family, one person like that, and uh, it's it's great. I really also appreciated the uh, the in the later part where you talked about the the uh, Pietros and the family. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my family when I was a kid had this as well. It was a Friday night. I grew up in Texas. It was Friday nights, the Mexican food restaurant. And even until my grandparents were quite elderly, my grandfather with his walker with the tennis balls on the bottom and his, his uh, uh, towel because he sometimes broke out in sweats, he wheeled himself in there and sat down and had his Friday meal. And of course, I was a teenager. So to me, that was just the way the world was. And as I've gotten older, I realized like every minute of those meals was somehow some other world. I don't know how to describe it. Maybe you understand. Yeah. Yeah, it was this time where we were there and and we knew like we just talked about whatever. At the time, mom couldn't understand a lot. She would lose her train of thought and bounce back and forth, but she would always laugh. And it just felt it felt like this special time. And then as different family came into town, they all knew, oh, we always go to Pietro's on Wednesday. So sometimes there would be 10 people there, sometimes there would just be four of us. My nephew who lives in town here, came every single Wednesday. Every Wednesday after work, he drove. And I know now for him, it's so meaningful that he got to spend that time with his Nana. What, what were her views, um, if you know, of uh, the healthcare system? I mean, did she is she a person who had to interact with the healthcare system much? I know later in her life she did, but did she have um, health conditions throughout her life or, or strong opinions about healthcare? I don't know that she had strong opinions about healthcare. She was always active. So she loved line dancing and she would go out and do that every, whatever, when she lived in Oregon here and again in Arizona, she would go out with her friends and go line dancing at the bar. She loved walking. She was pretty active and she really didn't have any Anything other than at times she tripped a couple times in the last, you know, 10 years of her life, she had some accidents and she tripped and hit her head and had severe concussions twice. And then the third time had a subdural hematoma where she was bleeding on her brain a little bit and they had to do surgery. And that's pretty much what kicked off her Alzheimer's. But she was a healthy healthy, vibrant. I, I can't express that enough. She was a force of nature. She really was. And the after the concussion and the Alzheimer's diagnosis, how much time lag was there between there? And, and what was that like for the family to, to cope uh, with that? 
Yeah, that was difficult because my mom was eccentric. And so um, she just became more eccentric. And we didn't really put two and two together that as her stories got more outlandish and her, you know, everything that she was doing, she just, the she got extra. You know how they say mm -hmm. she just got extra. And, um, and she spent all of her retirement money and, uh, and really drained her bank accounts all with her early Alzheimer's and we didn't know what was going on. So when I, we moved her here to Oregon, I had to help her get on state funded care. And so she was on Medicaid and uh, this really wonderful program locally called Elder Place that took over. They had her doctor, her nurses, her dental, everything went through them. They were fantastic. She, uh, she had to use their system. There was times when she definitely didn't like it and she was vocal about that, but it, it was a wonderful system for her given that she needed public assistance. And so share if you would a little bit of the decision-making of, of putting her in the memory care, moving her into the memory care facility, because that's, um, of course, it's an incredibly hard moment for any family, um, even when family members ha have no cognitive impairment to make the decision, even to move from one home to another later in life or to downsize, but then to move into a care facility is a wrenching decision. I know you went through it with your family. Yeah. Uh, she was living in assisted living and it was a small enough community and she could still be independent. So she could take a walker and go to the store. And then she started getting lost and we would have to go find her. And she got on a TriMet bus, which is our local um, public transportation. And she followed the bus all the way to that bus station. Like it went out of service and she didn't know enough to get off the bus. And so little things like that. So then I had to go pick her up at the um, bus station. But it just got to the point where she was getting lost in the building and not remembering who anybody was and uh, having a lot of uh, stress, stress and anxiety and yelling and the, the anger that comes along with the paranoia that comes along with Alzheimer's and her care, her daily care became more than the assisted living could provide. So I had to go on the hunt for uh, memory care. And that was so hard because there's places where people are very much in a deep state of dementia. And I knew my mom wouldn't even have anyone to talk to. So I had to find a place that had a good mix, but was also small enough that she could maybe remember names and interact and and feel like oh, like part of the community i guess because that was always so important to her was to have people to talk to and laugh with to tell her jokes she loved to tell jokes and her one-liners sure. and you know stuff like that i it was hard but i did find her this cute little memory care murray highland and there was only 20 people and they were relatively new and not even full capacity yet. So when she moved in, she was number 10 of 20 people. So it was wonderful. And they were wonderful. But it was hard because that first day she tried to follow us out the front door. And, you know, I had to say, no, mom, you have to stay right back there. And then when that door closed and it was magnetized and I could feel her grabbing it from the other side. That was hard. Did she like it there after some time? Did she after some time? It took her a month, month and a half. She um, was angry. She felt like I had dumped her there and forgotten about her. Which I always thought I'm here visiting you, but you're telling me I dumped you here and forgot about you. But you know that's just how it goes. I I learned to I learned a lot from my mom in these last six years of her life, how to accept, how to love unconditionally, how to just be with somebody. And it, even at the end when she had no idea that I was her daughter, I was just a nice lady who came to visit. Did the Alzheimer's progression scare her? Oh yes. It scared her and it made her angry. She, she didn't like that she couldn't remember. And she had some moments where I could tell 
she knew something was wrong. And she would say, Jen, I have no idea what's happening to me. Something's wrong. And then it would fade, fade away. And she would, she would go back into wherever she was. Um, but yeah, it made her angry for a while. And then she mellowed, which I, I read and learned a lot and talked to other people in support groups that tends to happen. There's that anger initially, but then Alzheimer's patients sort of mellow. And she was medicated at that point. We had to put her on some um, antipsychotic sort of medication to help with the anger. Tell me a little bit about just the daily life of the memory care facility. Were there a lot of people around? Uh, there were during the daytime. There was always two or three med aides, and there was a nurse who was there full time, which I thought was wonderful that there was a nurse during the day. On the weekends, they had a part time nurse that came in. In the evening, it was uh, less staff, but usually enough people around that if we brought her back from dinner, there was someone there who could help us get her settled in bed. Um, I got to know. I got to know most of the residents and by name and their families. And that was, that. Um, it was wonderful. It was a wonderful little community. Every Saturday, an accordion man in town locally would come play the accordion for an hour for them <laughs> and just play all the oldies. And uh, some, it was, it was beautiful. They really, I felt like my mom was very cared for and I felt like they worked with me and her on what she needed. My mom at that point needed to feel like she was doing something meaningful with her life. And so she believed she worked there. That was part of her, her delusion. So she was, she helped her roommate. She helped mm -hmm. her eat. She helped her do everything. And they let her have this job. They let her have this job, which helped her so much. I, I love that. I love that detail. My, my grandmother spent the last few years of her life in a nursing home in Odessa, Texas. And, uh, and my grandfather, who lived into his 90s, was there every day. And he was part of the community. And yeah. then he'd go home at night. And just this discussion with you is bringing back a lot of memories for me. And, and if you haven't spent time in those communities, I think a lot of people you know, they don't want to think about elder care facilities. They don't want to think about these kinds of facilities. But if you spend some time in one, you come to realize the daily rhythms of the place. Mm -hmm. um, that There's a lot of heartbreak there, but there's a lot of life there too. And yeah. my grandfather was sort of the mayor of this place. And, <laughs> and in fact, he fell at his home. Uh, and it was the nursing home staff when he didn't show up to see my grandmother who called to find out what had happened to him, they saved his life. Wow. So these communities work in ways that you don't necessarily understand or anticipate until you spend some time with them. Yeah. I always found that really interesting. Yeah. So I wonder then, you know, when COVID breaks out, what was the protocol change? How were you informed from huh. the memory care facility? What was what was that like as we moved into the into February, March of 2020? Yeah, I I did not learn from the memory care facility. I was watching the CDC. Um, not this. It was uh, the presidential briefing. At that point, the president was having a briefing every morning, and I was watching the briefing. And someone from the CDC came on and said that they were going to close down congregate care facilities, long term care facilities. And I looked at my husband and I was like, "That's mom. They're going to close the doors on her place." So we went over there and they confirmed it. So we visited with her and then I went the next day, which was the last day. I went twice. I went in the morning and I brought over clothes, uh, pants, some new sheets. I, bought, I brought toothpaste, all the things that I thought she might need. Cause I was thinking at that point, two weeks, you know, it was gonna be two weeks, maybe a month. And then I went back later that evening and they were confined to their rooms and I just sat on the bed and played her old 70s and 80s country songs on Spotify and tried really, really hard not to cry because I didn't want to stress her out or make her worried what was wrong with me. I didn't tell her really anything except that I would see her soon. And then I had this thing where I always looked back at her after she wasn't looking at me anymore so that I could sort of imprint the memory 
because I never knew, you know, what was going to happen with her. And I looked back and she looked at me and said, what's up, Jen? Which surprised me because she didn't really ever call me by my name at that point. And I just said, oh, nothing, mom, just, you know, looking at you saying goodbye. And I cried all the way out of there, but I couldn't hug the med aides or anybody at the door and we had to sign and leave and then it was locked and it took them a couple days to get window visits going but in after that i visited mom at the window as often as i could i got to this point where i had camping chairs in the back of my car i'd pull up in the thing grab the camping chair over my shoulder go sit it in front of her window and if it was warm out i had a mask on and the window was open if it was cold, we had speaker phones. You know, she had the one inside and, and I would call her and we would talk. But that after that, that is what I did practically every day until her birthday. So this is from March then all the way until the July. summer. Yeah. Yeah. You're making July these 15th. these visits. And I'm sort of imagining across the entire country and around the world this is happening. Oh I mean, yeah, it's, it's a whole world of window visits going on throughout that spring. You, we'll talk about the, your podcast in a moment, but one of the things in, in your introductory episode, you describe that process and you say the window visits broke me. They did. Why? Um, because at first it was uh, sweet and quaint, and I I thought, okay, I'm I'm doing this thing, and then when I looked at Oregon's phased plan for reopening. And there was nothing in that phase plan that said anything about visiting, uh, safely visiting nursing homes, working out safe visitation. There was nothing. It was three phases, pretty much lockdown, a very minimal opening, and then phase three when there's a reliable vaccine. And when I saw that, I thought, oh, Lord, at the time, a reliable vaccine was 18 months away. And so I started calling and I went in to see mom's care team. And I, I, did a, I did a bunch of different things, but I was just checking like, is it really gonna be 18 months before I can go back in there? And at that point, that's when I just felt, I just felt broken. Like I can't cut her nails. I can't go in and cut her hair. I can't put my arm around her. I can't hug her. It just, it was heartbreaking for me as the person who was her advocate and the person who saw her and knew her the most. And uh, yeah, that's, that's, that was hard. And that's when I started writing. I wrote the Oregon governor. I posted on social media. I called DHS and Adult Protective Services. I really tried to find like, how are we going to work out a way for family to be able to see their loved ones sooner than 18 months from now. Did you feel like the answers in terms of the reason for that kind of precaution were not acceptable answers or you just you couldn't get answers? I mean, how was the communication when you write these letters or reach out to people and try to get a deeper understanding? Because I think, you know, it sort of intuitively makes sense, particularly earlier in the pandemic, that in these facilities, when you saw what the statistics were in Italy, for example, mm -hmm. what was happening to the elder populations um, in countries that had been hit by COVID first, it was really terrifying to see what it was doing to older populations, particularly people with comorbidities. But, but then, as you say, you sort of come to this consciousness, you're like, well, wait a minute, is that just that box is checked now and we leave this place closed forever? I mean, I, there's a moment in there of a sort of, as you describe it, a sort of consciousness like, they seem to have gotten the first part right, but they didn't know what to do next. Right. And that's how I felt. I felt like locking them down was a good move for the first couple of months. And then after that, we needed to do something or at least start to work on something. Uh, I know there were rapid results tests. Uh, we could have used those. I would have gone in and done a six feet away visit just to see her face to face with masks on i would have done rapid results testing i would have there's so many different things i could think of even outdoor visits in the summertime had we been able to come outside and sit six feet apart i still couldn't have you know clipped her nails or 
cut her hair or done any of those things. But sitting in that window down below her with her up above and it just, it just, oh, I, I just felt like a minnow in a huge sea of everything that was going on around me. And I reached out to newspapers and I wrote the letters and I wrote every single congressman and senator in the state of Oregon countless times about it and just really heard nothing back. But the news shifted so quickly around. And even my complaints to adult protective services, because there were, I had questions. You know, one time I was sitting outside the window and talking to my mom, a man pulled up, he gets out of his car, he puts on a mask, he grabs a camera bag and a tripod, rings the bell, and they let him in. And I called the next day and I said, what was that about? And he was a photographer for their new webpage and their new Yelp profile. And I was like, okay, if he can go in, why can't I go in? Can, what can I do to be able to go in? They didn't have any answers. All they said was it was up to the people who own the facility. And I kept saying, well, how can I talk to them? What can we do? How can I work with them? And it was always, we'll come back around to it. Or this changed, or we don't want to get fined, or you need to call Adult Protective Services. It was always pushed off to contact somebody else and reach out to somebody else. And then of course, you know, my mom got COVID and yeah. Was, was she sick for very long? Um, she what, tested positive on the 12th, 13th of August and she passed away on the 24th. She went very quickly, um, relatively, you know, speaking, I know there's a lot of people who linger. My mom had a very, detailed DNR or like an end of a life plan. She didn't want any extraordinary measures. And that was very difficult because they kept calling me saying, we want to take her to the hospital. We've got to take her here. We've got to do this. And I knew, I knew my mom didn't want that. My mom didn't want Alzheimer's. And she had told me many times when she was clear headed, she was ready to go. And, and so I just had to keep standing up for her and what she wanted. And she was moved to a COVID nursing home. So it was a nursing home with only COVID people. And I could only see her at the window, which I did one time. And then we had FaceTime visits uh, at the very end. But by then she had on the oxygen mask and she couldn't talk and she was too, too medicated. The decision to move her to the COVID nursing home was yours Out or not yours? Control. No, that was uh, the state of Oregon moved in with an executive order closing the facility and they moved everybody out because the outbreak happened so quickly. It was one new employee who'd only worked there two days. And again, part of my whole thing was employees. I felt like employees should have been tested before, um, even quarantined before they started working and gone through some sort of testing measures because we had rapid results tests in August of last year. And I, I felt I was very frustrated, but I thought, okay, it's a new employee and she worked the night shift. So hopefully she didn't interact with too many people. And in the break room, there was no one around when she took her mask off to eat, but it went through the whole facility, all 20 residents. And, um, of the 20 staff, 15 got COVID. So 35 people altogether got mm -hmm. COVID in that outbreak. And seven of the residents passed away, including my mom, seven out of 20. So the state closed it down and the state moved my mom. I had no choice where she went. Just want to remind everyone you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Jennifer Sullivan today, the creator of the For Those We Lost podcast. And we're hearing about um, Bobby Lee, about your mom, and um, and also what you were going through there in the summer of 2020. Let's talk about the, 
there's other parts of this I hope we'll get to, but let's let's talk about the podcast a little bit. Everyone should listen to it. Um, mm -hmm. It's uh, I think you have eight, eight episodes done. Right. You uh, have other interviews done. You're this is a labor of love. You're editing these yourself, and I want to talk about a couple of the individual episodes that I listened to, but I mean, just a more general level, uh, why a podcast? Well, um, really I tried legal, I tried legal avenues first with when my mom passed away, I was very angry and I still feel, uh, sometimes a pretty intense level of anger over what happened to her. When she passed away, there was only 400 deaths in Oregon. And so, so that in my mind, the chance of her getting COVID and dying just seems so small. And I was, I was so upset. I tried contacting a few lawyers. There was immunity laws put in place for memory cares and hospitals and nursing homes, which to a degree I understood. And then after that, I just, I reached out on Facebook and found a Facebook group for COVID survivors. And I felt a bit of a community there, but it got very big, very quickly. And, and I thought, I, you know, I was just driving one day and I was listening to this interview podcast and I can't even remember what it was about. And as I was listening and driving, I thought, huh, I wonder if I could interview people who lost someone to COVID. I wonder if that would help because I didn't have anybody to talk to and I didn't really know anybody except through social media. So I sent a message to this Facebook group and said, can you put this idea out there? And about 20 people messaged me, like my phone just went with all these messages and I started calling people on the phone and scheduling interviews. And the, the early interviews, those people who trusted me when I had nothing, no podcast, I didn't even have a name for it. I had no idea what I was going to call it. I just felt so much better. Even though you think that talking to somebody about their loved one dying should be sad. And um, it just healed. It helped me. And then usually what would happen is during the course of it, they would say like, this has been so amazing to talk about my brother or my mom or my husband. Because we just we didn't, we weren't doing it. We aren't doing it. So you found each other through social media channels. I mean, that's how this yeah. starts, but I, but I find it really interesting that the, well, a couple of things you said, they're really fascinating. One is that the social media group, so I guess you're in Facebook mm -hmm. and it expanded, you said it expanded very quickly. What was, what was, what was the impact of that expansion? Was it jarring to the community? What did it mean to have it expand quickly? That seemed to be something that, that was important to you. Yeah. It, um, when I first joined, I, I felt like with the welcomes and the messages, you, you could like, there was a thread where we each shared a video of our loved one well before COVID and we all, um, laughed and, and supported each other. And then there would be people that came in that were just so devastatingly sad because their loss was so recent. And so I found myself going through this over and, and over again with all of these posts. But then there was so many more because by the time November and December rolled around, you had this winter surge and uh, it, it just, it was a, it was a lot. It was a lot of people that joined and there were so many posts. And at, at times I felt like I needed to take a step back and just be with my own feelings about my own grief with my mom. Cause I was really trying at that point to not, not be angry, but move through the anger because it wasn't my mom. My mom wouldn't have wanted me to stay angry. She would have wanted me to be happier and, and be not productive, but she would have wanted, she wouldn't have wanted me to wallow. There we go. She wouldn't have wanted me to wallow. Well, far be it for me to be an apologist for Facebook, but I do think it's important to note here that, that in that moment, that community came together and it's not it's on other social media platforms as well, mm -hmm. but it, the way you're describing it, it was very important to you at a critical 
a critical moment. The community was important to you at a critical moment. Oh yeah, because I didn't know anybody at all. So to be there on, on, on and read other people's stories and hear of other people who had family members in memory care and that they were so upset too, um, it just, it, it felt like, okay, here's people who understand how terrible and, and griefy I feel. What was it like the first time you asked somebody else about their experience and you were recording it? Oh, gosh. My, the first one I recorded is episode two, and that was Maureen. And she was she was fantastic. I was nervous. I was very nervous because I thought, oh, how is this going to go? And I have these questions and this idea. But, um, oh, my gosh, it was just wonderful to hear her story because her husband was also in a nursing home. And she was she experienced the window visits and she went through the lockdown. And and I tell you, her also, I, I believe her wedding anniversary uh, was the my mom's birthday. And so there was this additional bonding. And I feel like just even from that first episode, Maureen and I still keep in touch. Like I still I sent her a message on her anniversary thinking of you because you know, it was the you know second one without her husband or the first one without her husband. It's just, I was nervous, but I, I just felt like when I, when I finish, when I finish each interview and I'm done, I sit there and I take this deep breath and I'm just like, wow, that was wonderful. It feels wonderful in, in this weird weird way to to share with other people and to have them share with me it just feels wonderful i if you don't mind i want to ask a little bit more about that because it's um everyone should listen to this episode it's maureen in washington mm -hmm. if i've got that one right and yeah. it's a hard story to listen to mm -hmm. honestly and she describes her husband's he ha he had ms yeah, and, and, um, and there's a point in there in which she, she talks about, um, she has her list. I think I've got the right one. She had her list of talking points yeah. that politicians and people were using to dismiss the seriousness of COVID. Yeah. And the first one was the comorbidities to say, well, if somebody had something else, then, you know, it can't really, we can't blame COVID. They were sick from something right. else. And she said, I mean, she just says it very clearly. She said, yes, he had MS, but he died from COVID. Mm -hmm. It's a hard talk. It is. And so I wonder, maybe just say a little bit more about how, why you wanted to do that, or why you wanted to keep going, or you said that it was it was a relief for you in some ways to have those conversations. Is it that you you found some solidarity, or it helped you see things in your own, in your mom's experience that you hadn't? So I'm just curious to know a little bit more because you're describing it as a healing, yeah. but to me, it's 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 hard as a listener. I'm not bad, but it's honest and it's amazing, yeah. but it's also, it's really hard to listen to. Yeah. I think part of that comes from um, feeling like people don't understand uh, my grief. I think that's part of it. I have, lo I lost my grandparents. My husband lost his mother suddenly 10 years ago, and he wasn't there when she passed away. But even trying to talk to him about how I feel about my mom dying of COVID, I felt like he and I, we weren't on the, like he didn't get it. And there is something isolating about COVID grief. I, I think part of it is you uh, wonder what it was like. Like for me, I wonder what my mom was going through in those last minutes. She was alone. I know she was alone. I know there wasn't even a nurse in the room with her because when the nurse called and told me, she had said she'd given her some morphine and then left and came back a half hour later and my mom had passed away. So that I got that call in the middle of the night. I felt alone. I felt isolated. There's the isolation of COVID in general. And I, it's hard to explain, Scott. It's really hard to explain. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know why, why. I, yeah. Um, it's just been a beautiful thing. 
And then even the people I talk to on the phone, because I talk to a lot of people on the phone ahead of time who think that they would want to do something like this. And then we talk and then they change their mind. Mm -hmm. But even in that talking, they'll send me an email after and say, that really helped to talk to you. And they are hard episodes to listen to. There's one in particular, Lauren, whose mother worked at um, assisted living and got COVID in an exposure there. And as she's telling the story about her mom and the day her mom died, I am, thank goodness mine aren't on video, but I was crying to the point where I'm listening to her and then trying to pull myself together so that she could, you know, I could ask her questions and she could continue to tell her story. But yeah, it, it just, it, it, there's something odd or different about COVID grief. And, and I think that they will be looking at and, and studying. I think people in colleges and places everywhere are going to study this kind of grief and COVID grief and not having a funeral not doing those normal things that families do when someone dies. My, my mom's sisters lived nearby. I could have gone to see them if she had died of Alzheimer's, but because she died of COVID during the middle of COVID, I couldn't go see my aunts and give them hugs and sit and talk to them about my mom. And, you know, I just sat at home. Yeah, there's so many things in what you're describing, the, the distance, that long period that you described earlier before your mom had COVID, mm -hmm. sort of a sense of dread. This is going to be a long period. We don't know exactly what's coming. Um, on top of already older people who are who may be ill or have Alzheimer's, whatever. So the dread is always there, but then this is another layer of it. Kay yeah. Hay has written in to say something else, which I think is quite important, which is mm -hmm. not to mention many dismiss our feelings. They do. And I think we've already, um, I think we need to spend a lot more time talking about that because it's, it's a little bit too easy for people to say, oh, it became political mm -hmm. as if that's the answer, but it became political in a particularly, well, I'm sort of curious your take on it, my sense mm -hmm. in a particularly hurtful way, because there was a denial of people's feelings it, in one sense, because the idea was that all of the attention should be paid on the on the pandemic and controlling the pandemic. So there's no time to grieve or listen. We just have to move on quickly, almost like a war. But then also the denialism started and the victim blaming started. I don't know if you had to deal with any of that on social media or in your in your life or with your podcast. It's really devastating, I think. Yeah, I haven't had to deal with it with the podcast because the community coming up around the podcast is very much people who have lost someone to COVID. So luckily I haven't had to deal with it there. I do have um, people in my family who uh, think it's just a flu. I'm very tired of that. I'm very tired of hearing it's just a flu. And the, there are other people who say, well, your mom had Alzheimer's, she was gonna die anyway. Which, you know, yeah, she had Alzheimer's, it's terminal. It, it's, a, it's not an illness that people survive from. Um, but she probably had a lot of years left and would they have been fantastic years? Probably not in her mind, but I wasn't, I wasn't ready. I, I, I wanted her here. I want her here. I wanted that chance to hold her hand and wipe her brow and sit with her at the very end of her life. And I didn't get that opportunity. And I think that's something that when it's politicized or when people start talking about pre-existing conditions and comorbidities, they, they lose that thread that in normal circumstances, you would be with your loved one when they passed away. In, and even now there's people dying alone, alone or with just one family member. And, and in a family where somebody has daughters and sons and only one person can be there. The, yeah, I mean, there's something in that also that um, I don't know if somebody says to you, well, your mom had Alzheimer's anyway, may, maybe that's a person who's trying to comfort you. I mean, maybe it's not. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've heard people say those kinds of things, you know, when an older person dies says, oh, they had a really good 
wife. And uh, that's yeah. true. But I, you know, in your in your mom's obituary, I love that you name the names of the grandchildren and the great grandchildren. And for those grandchildren and great grandchildren, they might have one or two memories. Every additional day that an elder lives is a chance for them to have that memory. Yeah. It's really important. Yeah. Yeah, the older grandkids did have a lot of memories of their Nana. And when we did finally have her memorial service just this last summer, uh, they shared. They shared a lot about how wonderful she was. She would do anything for her grandkids. She went down water slides for her grandkids. She would sleep camping on the ground for her grandkids. She she was always there. And it's the great-grandchildren. You know, there was one born right before the pandemic, little Jackson, and she met him at the window. That was the first time she got to meet him. Let's talk about the episode with uh, Rima. Oh, yeah. In New Jersey. It's a great episode. Again, people can check that out on the For Those We Lost podcast. And they're all great. Um, this one really stopped me in my tracks. It's a, it's a really, again, it's a hard story. Yeah. There's some resonance with what you were describing because it's, she's talking about the story of her brother here. And he got moved from one care facility to another. Do you want to say a little bit about that story? Yeah, he was having some kidney treatment in the hospital. And then they needed a, a nurse on his floor tested positive for COVID. And so they sent him to a facility, a nursing home to recover in the COVID unit of that nursing home, even though at that point his test was not positive for COVID. They sent him there anyway. And then it, within just a little bit, they had no real connection with him or contact with him. And then he passed away. And, and then they allowed them to go in which I just found like that it's just gut wrenching that afterwards you can put on all the PP and go in when they've passed away, but not when they're alive. And uh, that was such a beautiful episode because I called her ahead of time. She sent me this wonderful email. I called her, we talked, and then she told me about her brother. And then about a, an hour or two before we recorded, she said, oh, I have this memorial in my brother's name. Can I talk about that too? Oh, sure, because I love that. And so we went through the whole story, and then I asked her about this memorial, and she starts talking about that and the heart on the beach. And I realized I have known who she is for months with her beach memorial, and it just it still gives me goosebumps because I had no idea who I was talking to during this interview. And then she starts telling me about this thing, and now her memorial is the first physical uh, COVID memorial that is located in a physical place in New Jersey. It It's not a moving memorial or a transitional one or one that's set up and comes down. It's there. Oh, she's, she's remarkable. And, though, and she still is just so available in the community to everybody who needs a place to grieve or mourn or, yeah, she's remarkable. Yeah, it's, it's a really... Good story in that sense, and her activism, her memorial as a form of activism is really important. And you got this long, in-depth discussion I did from her, and you got it, I think, at a crucial moment. I mean, that's a lot of what I try to do with this, with this project, is that um, memory fades. Things mm -hmm. change, and we do have to try to, if we're willing and able, to capture how we are feeling and the details of this moment. But it raises a question for me. You said that COVID grief is different. Will COVID recovery be different too? And I, I don't mean that necessarily for sufferers because we, there's long COVID, so we don't know yet what their recovery is going to be like. But I mean for the family members, those who've lost loved ones, what's the pathway ahead and how, how do you think that might be different than it would have been otherwise? Yeah. I, um, that's a really good question. I, I have been working with a counselor who has helped me a lot with understanding with my grief. She's not specifically a grief counselor, but she also helped me understand how to accept my mom for who she was and where she was in her Alzheimer's and just to find this place of unconditional love with no resentment 
for the caregiving I had to do. And so with, with COVID grief and recovery, I, I was just talking with a lady the other day that I recorded, and I haven't even gone back to edit that episode. She was married to her husband for 56 years, and he died last October. And she asked me, she goes, they say time heals. Do you think that that's true? And my answer was, I don't, I don't think, I don't think time heals it. I think that we, I feel like I've just found a place inside me where I can carry or I'm trying to carry this grief that I have about my mom and how she died and what happened. And I think that's part of the recovery is being able to talk about that and and talk to other people and understand we all have these different experiences. Some of us were there, some of us weren't. But every single day, I'm reminded of COVID. I'm reminded on the news. It's the top story. I'm reminded when I log in to teach my college classes because there's still a ticker at the top about COVID. Yeah. Um, Everything is like pre-COVID times or, and it, it makes it seems like, it makes it seem like COVID has lasted, like that it's the only thing I remember. I, I you know, what was my life before this? I don't know. Uh, COVID recovery is, it's, um, it's going to be long. It's going to be long. It's going to be a long process as people understand and are less forward about that back to normal because we're not as a world in general there's not that we can't go back to normal the only thing we can do is go forward whatever forward looks like for everybody whether you lost someone to COVID or not all we can do is go forward we can't go back and that's going to be part of that recovery is how do we all move into this next phase of whatever this looks like I want to ask you about this because I've been pretty resistant to the war metaphor for COVID for lots of reasons because mm -hmm. I think uh, it puts an emphasis on violence. But um, but in this way, what you're describing, I think it's it's interesting, which is that your own personal, whoever's own you know personal grief and coping with the loss of a loved one, you there's no escaping it because as you say, every day COVID is is driving. Mm -hmm. the news and it and it affects all of our surroundings i mean i'm in south korea the loss of life here has been less than in just in your state oh wow for this whole country but masks indoors outdoors signage you never forget COVID. it is it is the setting of our lives and i wonder with that in mind back to, question for you is i could imagine you might find some solidarity in that which is a sort of sense like hey we're this is a big thing i had a loved one who died in the middle of a of a world changing event and we're in the middle of this but you're not describing getting much peace from that frankly no no not right now not right now i um i think i think peace will come in time i i think I love Rima's memorial and I love what it stands for. I, I think that we need some more things like what happened with the flags in Washington, DC. And I, some, it's hard to quantify. We, there's numbers every single day, every single day in the United States, every single day for the world. And you get desensitized to the fact that every one of those numbers is a human being and their family who love them. And, and that's that's the part that's the part for me that is uh, that's hard. It's hard to reckon that in my head. Those flags were profound. Just seeing all of those flags in Washington D.C. and all spread out like that. And I submitted my mom's name, and I cried so much when I saw her flag, even though I didn't go there and I'm so far away from it. It's still it still gave me this feeling of my mom's name is there and she's, she's remembered. And I think that's, that, that'll come in time when we have some sort of um, larger memorial or some sort of way to remember them. 
as as not just part of a pandemic and part of this kind of over politicized thing that has happened in the United States in particular, but yeah. Is that something you'd like to have a, a physical, like a national physical memorial, or is this something else you want? Uh, no, I think a, a national physical memorial would be wonderful. I don't know what that would look like because I think we'll be adding names uh, to the list for a while, quite a while longer. Um, and so it would have to be something that's, you know, expandable, changeable. I, I don't, I mean, I couldn't even imagine how you could get that many names in one space. Like the Vietnam Memorial, I've been to many times. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. But if 700 and I think what, 740, 730,000 names right now, we're not ready. We're not ready for a national memorial yet because we don't have consensus around uh, how to do it and 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 even an idea of when we would not be adding so many names. Do you see the podcast as a as a form of advocacy? I mean, is there is there something you'd like to achieve with it in terms of? And we were coming back to those all those letters you wrote, all those calls you made. <laughs> It, do you want it to inspire some after the fact look at the way that the laws are in Oregon around um, care facilities or or is it not about that for you is it is it really more about sharing and coping and, and grief sharing um, it, now it is about sharing and coping and grief sharing when I first started writing to senators and congressmen in Oregon and the governor, I think what I wanted was for Governor Kate Brown of Oregon to know my name. I wanted her to be like, oh, that Jennifer Sullivan, she just won't leave me alone. That was my goal then. And when I first thought of this podcast idea, I thought, oh, well, I'll, you know, she'll maybe someday listen and know who I am. It's gone so far beyond that for me now, it, just very quickly beyond the politics of it and anything else. And it's more just for healing and um, creating a community of people where we can talk about how we feel without worry that people are going to downplay or uh, diminish our grief. We're almost up on time in my discussion with Jennifer Sullivan today on, on COVID calls. Uh, question for you that I ask myself frequently, how long do you plan to do this? Oh, wow. Um, well, uh, somebody asked me this the other day. There's 700 and um, some odd thousand people in the United States alone who have died of COVID. I can't interview them all in my lifetime, but I'm going to try. That was, okay. that was my answer. As many people as want to tell me their story, I will listen and I will do this. So this is a this is a lifetime commitment for you. Yeah. Yeah. Right now where I'm at in my life, definitely. I just want to remind everyone you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls at 6 p.m. Eastern time almost every day live. And of course, you can catch all of the previous COVID calls episodes on any of the podcast streaming services that you use or on YouTube. And you can find me on Twitter at US of Disaster. And I want to thank my guest today, Jennifer Sullivan, who is the creator of the For Those We Lost podcast, which you can find also on any of the major podcast streaming services that you listen to, or you can go to the website for those we lost podcast, all one word.com. Please, please go and please listen. And uh, Jennifer Sullivan, uh, what an honor to talk to you and to get to read your mom's obituary and to learn about your work. And um, I hope we'll stay connected. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's been such an honor. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow for a discussion of long COVID. Stay healthy. Thank you.